Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A plot to steal one of the most valuable objects on the planet. Diamonds may be a girl's best friend, but moon rocks are the ultimate prize Cryptic carvings that may lead to a buried fortune. He found something very rich and very rare. And a rusty axe head, once used in a murderous plot. It's the perfect tool for murder. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. The city of Chicago stands tall as the giant of the Midwest, a vital hub with ports linking the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Generations of men and women built this world-class city from the docks on up. Their achievements celebrated by the Chicago Maritime Museum. Model ships to rusty anchors fill the displays. But a dark undercurrent surges through this city's maritime past. Museum President Jerry Thomas admits this relic looks unimpressive at first. It's tatty, it's old, it's moldy. It looks like something that you ought not to save. A dilapidated life jacket made of cork and cloth, discolored and damaged with age. Stamped on the vest in fading black letters is a ship's name, SS Eastland. This life jacket is a reminder of what historian Ted Karamansky calls one of the deadliest tragedies in American maritime history. The Eastland disaster stunned 
the city of Chicago. Indeed, it stunned the nation. What calamitous event befell the SS Eastland? And could it have been avoided? July 24, 1915. Early on a Saturday morning, employees of Western Electric and their families gather at the docks in downtown Chicago and prepare for the short trip across Lake Michigan to their annual company picnic. Over 7,000 tickets were sold. So you can imagine that the docks were crowded with people all anxious to get going. Boat travel is still the prime choice for a day's excursion, despite memories of the RMS Titanic's horrific shipwreck just three years earlier. Six chartered steamships will ferry the passengers across the lake, and the first among them is the SS Eastland. Eastland uh, was once the pride of the Great Lakes, uh, a beautiful, sleek, white steamer. By 6.40 a.m., the gangplanks are lowered and a rush of passengers flood onto the Eastland. But the sudden increase in weight throws the ship off kilter. As folks boarded the vessel, uh, it immediately began to list toward the dock. To balance out the weight of the boarding passengers, the crew fills the ship's ballast tanks with water. A little after 7 a.m., the Eastland is fully loaded and the gangplanks pulled up. But as the passengers move about the ship, it becomes increasingly unstable and lists in the other direction. You find picnic baskets sliding dramatically off to one side. In the saloon, beer bottles are falling off their shelves. By 727, the ship is tilting at an angle of 30 degrees. Only minutes later, the Eastland plunges onto its side while it is still tied to the dock. Cheers turn into cries of terror. Passengers from the upper deck are thrown into the river. Others jump out of sheer panic. They had a very difficult time to make it to the surface, uh, in part because the Chicago River was full of refuse. Below deck, trapped passengers face drowning or being crushed to death. A full-scale rescue operation is launched, and life jackets are thrown into the water to those struggling to survive. But in the end, a staggering 844 lives are lost. For a week after the disaster, bodies were pulled out of the Eastland. In the morgues of Chicago were 22 whole families, representing 28 different nationalities. A public outcry follows immediately, demanding answers. How could such a fatal disaster occur with the ship still tied to the wharf? An investigation clears the crew of blame and unearths a key structural issue. The Eastland was really an accident waiting to happen. From the very beginning, the Eastland had been built for speed, not stability. It had a very narrow keel. It could, therefore, knife through the water at a great speed. But it meant that it uh, sat very high in the water and was unstable. But the Eastland had a sterling safety record with countless trips without incident. So what sent this final voyage plunging into disaster? The answer can be traced back to the journey of a luxury liner some three years earlier, the RMS Titanic. 
After nearly 1,500 passengers of this legendary vessel were sent to their watery graves, new safety laws were enacted for passenger ships like the Eastland. After that awful scene on the Titanic, where so many hundreds were left without a seat in a lifeboat, it was determined all vessels had to increase their number of lifeboats. The Eastland, built a decade earlier, was retrofitted to meet the recently passed guidelines, though not without a heavy cost. The Eastland had hanging from its upper decks additional lifeboats that added hundreds of pounds of more weight. The already unstable Eastland had never been tested at full capacity with the added weight of the lifeboats. The moment passengers began to board that vessel, the clock was ticking towards disaster. These lifeboats, meant to save valuable lives, are the fatal tipping point for the Eastland. And in the catastrophe, only a single boat is used. One year later, a congressional investigation brings about stricter rules for ship stability, ensuring no ship would repeat the Eastland's woeful fate. One of the reasons we like to keep the artifacts and keep the stories alive is because those lessons learned so many years ago are lessons that still are important today. And so the legacy of the Eastland lives on, with the life vest on display at the Chicago Maritime Museum as a waterlogged reminder of one of the worst tragedies in maritime history. Space Center Houston in Houston, Texas, is the official repository for many of NASA's greatest treasures, including the Apollo 17 command module and the Gemini 5 space capsule. But of all this museum's treasures, perhaps its most priceless are a small cluster of rocks kept deep in its back vaults. They're about two pounds to five pounds each, about the size of a softball. They're gray in color with black and white tones. These rocks may look ordinary, but in fact, they're among the most precious objects on the planet. They are moon rocks. Diamonds may be a girl's best friend, but moon rocks are the ultimate prize. All 842 pounds of moon rock that Americans have brought back to Earth are owned by the U.S. government. They're worth $50,000 per gram, making them a highly valued and guarded national treasure. The moon rocks held here are in a vault more secure than all the gold in Fort Knox. So how could $32 million worth of NASA moon rocks be at the heart of one of the greatest heists in history? July 2002, Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas. 25-year-old Tad Roberts is on his way to work to begin his third internship at NASA. He had a desire to be an astronaut, and people around him said that he was a go-getter and, and seemed to have the quote-unquote right stuff to be able to do that. But there is a dark, secret side to Tad's life. He is a risk-taker who wants to do something no one thinks is possible. Something he can brag about. Like stealing some of the rarest items on Earth. Robert's got it in his head, what if he could get a hold of some moon rocks? Could he sell them? 
But the moon rocks are held in ultra-protected vaults. So how will he get to them? While Roberts tries to figure out a way to get past NASA's rigid security, he discovers that a NASA scientist named Everett Gibson might provide a simpler road to riches. Everett Gibson had a safe in his office that he used to hold lunar rocks and and even Martian meteorite samples uh, for public demonstration and education. Roberts decided that that would be the safe that he would target for theft. Determined to steal the moon rocks from Gibson's safe, Roberts enlists the help of his girlfriend, 22-year-old fellow intern, Tiffany Fowler. This was Tad's retirement plan. Um, They would be able to sell the moon rocks and hit the road. Even before trying to steal the moon rocks, Roberts starts posting on internet message boards, offering the stolen goods for sale. It's not long before he gets an email from an interested buyer, a prominent Belgian rock collector by the name of Axel Emmerman. Finally, on Saturday, July 13th, after weeks of meticulous planning, the big night arrives. Roberts and Fowler use their NASA IDs to quietly enter the Johnson Space Center. Once they get the safe into their car, they're able to drive off property, past guards, um, off uh, to a local motel. But when they get to their motel hideout, they realize that opening a 600-pound safe is no easy task. They get hold of a saw, and they start sawing away at it. And eventually, persistence pays off, and they're able to open the door to the safe. Eureka! When the safe door flies open, Roberts and Fowler believe they are staring at their ticket to endless riches. In total, these uh, kids had stolen moon rocks worth over $32 million. On Saturday, July 20th, one week after the robbery, Roberts and Fowler drive their hall to meet their Belgian contact at a restaurant in Orlando, Florida. But when Tad and Tiffany sit down for dinner, things take an unexpected turn. The most valuable material on Earth isn't diamonds or gold. It's moon rocks. In 2002, $32 million worth of moon rocks are stolen from Johnson Space Center in Houston. The robbers? Two promising NASA interns. But when they try to sell their loot, they find they're in for a rude awakening. They meet at a local restaurant in Orlando and sit down to enjoy a meal, talk together, and then do business. But quickly, the dinner takes a shocking turn. As soon as Tad brings out the moon rocks to show them what he has, the authorities surround the place. Everyone in the restaurant turns out to be an undercover agent, and they're arrested. Unbeknownst to Tad, Axel Emmerman has been working hand-in-hand with the FBI. He contacts the Internet Fraud Division of the FBI. And, And from that point on, every email that Tad receives from Axel is really an email being directed through the FBI. For Tad Roberts, his life is utterly transformed. One minute he has the right stuff, 
The next, he's doing time in a federal penitentiary. For her part, Tiffany testifies against Tad and receives probation, home arrest, and community service. Evidence of their crime remains on view at Space Center Houston, reminding us of one of the most reckless and daring robberies of the 21st century. About 20 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is a small, all-American town named Donora. While the Donora Historical Society celebrates the town's large-scale factories, it also showcases a tiny oxygen tank with an outsized role in state history. It's about maybe three feet long. It weighs somewhere between, I think, 40 and 50 pounds. But Historical Society board member Charles E. Stacy knows that this oxygen tank's impact can't be measured by its size. I thought, how could a, an item which looks so simple and be so relatively small be so vital to the lives of so many people? What role did this tank play in one of the most bizarre and deadly events in state history? Friday, October 29, 1948. It's the annual Halloween parade in Donora, Pennsylvania, a prosperous industrial town driven by its thriving mills. So it was a happy, wonderful place to live during the 1940s. But on that evening in October, a strange black smog settles in the valley. The fog was so thick, it was impossible to see the marchers in the parade. We had to be very careful not to fall off the curbs. At first, it's just difficult to see. But by the next day, the dense cloud has thickened and people are struggling to breathe. It burned your eyes and it burned your breathing passages. People were calling the police department, they were calling the fire department, asking for any type of aid they could. Residents are accustomed to the nearby steel and zinc factories emitting pollution. But they've never experienced anything like this before. Hospitals were just jam-packed with people. In fact, they had to set up an emergency clinic in the Denora Hotel where the nurses and doctors were taking care of the people. An air of panic envelops Denora. The able-bodied flee the town to avoid the smog leaving behind the housebound elderly and infirm. But one brave firefighter named Bill Shemp stays behind to save the elderly residents trapped indoors. And he carries with him the only oxygen tank in the whole town. He got that tank and carried it with him to many houses in Denora where people had complained that they had loved ones who couldn't breathe. But even brave firefighters like Bill Shemp are disoriented by the overwhelming smog in the air. And because the, the oxygen tank was heavy, he actually crawled along the sidewalks in Denora to give aid and assistance. Bill would go into the house, let them have a few breaths of that oxygen, and then move on. But Shemp can only reach so many sufferers. And within 48 hours of the Halloween parade, 20 people are dead. What is causing this deadly outbreak of smog? And what can be done to save the residents of Denora? 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's 1948. A thick blanket of noxious smog rolls over the small town of Denora, Pennsylvania, making it nearly impossible to breathe. Two days later, 20 people are dead, and thousands more are ill. What is this mysterious smog, and how can it be stopped? The U.S. Public Health Service dispatches investigators to Denora, to try to figure out what's causing the deadly smog and if they can stop it. The investigators act quickly, shutting down the town's steel and zinc mills. But that doesn't stop the smog. Then a sudden rainstorm falls on Denora the same day, cleaning the air above the town. But questions and health problems remain. Within a month, 50 more people die from respiratory illnesses associated with the smog. And health officials still don't know what caused this tragedy. Investigators study Denora for three months, checking weather patterns and health diagnoses. They come up with a theory that a series of cloudless, dry nights near Halloween caused a freak meteorological event called a temperature inversion. It serves as a blanket or a lid, and it traps the warm air close to the ground. Normally, hot air is expelled through the clouds, 
but the cloudless, cool nights near Halloween formed a canopy of cold air over Denora. This canopy, or temperature inversion, trapped the steel and zinc emissions inside the town, creating a toxic cloud filled with poisonous chemicals. Things just stagnated, and it became uh, probably the cause of the death. Experts would argue for years if the factories were to blame for the deaths, or the temperature inversion, or both. But no one disputes that the Denora smog tragedy paved the way for landmark environmental legislation. Most of the scientific textbooks that deal with air pollution always has Denora as the first chapter in the book. And this antiquated oxygen tank, sitting in the Denora Historical Society, not only saved dozens of lives, but it also marks the beginning of the environmental movement in America. At the Superstition Mountain Museum in Apache Junction, Arizona, is a set of artifacts that has confounded men for decades. Three 25-pound slabs of stone, each two inches thick, and a smaller heart-shaped rock, adorned with Spanish phrases and cryptic symbols. A priest, a horse, and a cross and other strange etchings. These are the Peralta Stones. For decades, they have been the starting point for a quest through the rugged Superstition Mountains that has sent many men to their graves. Why were they made? And what is the meaning behind these obscure markings? Arizona. 1860s. As the gold rush in California winds down, prospectors drift east to Arizona in search of untapped mines. George Johnston is the president of the Superstition Mountain Historical Society. There was certainly gold here, and some of the richest gold that's ever been known has come out of Arizona, not maybe in quantity, but in quality. One of those looking to strike it rich is Jacob Waltz. Jacob Waltz came from Germany. He was a prospector. He was a guy looking for gold. At the time, Germany is sometimes referred to as Deutschland, and locals come to refer to Waltz as the Dutchman. I know that he spent many, many, many years tracing in through these mountains and other mountains around here looking for gold, looking for a fortune. But his fellow prospectors know little about the Dutchman and his quest for gold. Until 1891, when Waltz falls gravely ill and on his deathbed shares an astonishing secret. For years in the Superstition Mountains, he harvested a secret gold mine. As the story goes, Waltz was not the first to claim this wondrous mine. On one of his trips into the mountain, searching for the bonanza for gold, he came upon three guys who were obviously digging gold. It is believed the men are members of a Mexican mining family named Peralta. Eager for a share of their mine, Waltz makes himself indispensable to the brothers. These three guys said that the Apaches were making life miserable for them. He had in his possession a modern breech-loading shotgun. 
he volunteered to be the defense that they needed for a share of the mine. Legend has it that the wealth of the brothers' mine is astounding. Unwilling to share the spoils, Walt moves to increase his stake. As the story goes, with the very shotgun he was to use to protect the brothers, Walt shoots and kills them. And takes sole possession of the mine. For years, he keeps the mine a secret and amasses a fortune. When he dies, Walt takes the secret of his mine's location to his grave. And the legend of his gold grows. For years, prospectors and treasure hunters search for Walt's fabled motherload in Arizona's treacherous Superstition Mountains. It's not a place to make mistakes. It's not a place to stumble. It's not a place to go in ill-equipped. Many people have gone in there and lost their lives. The source of Walt's gold remains a mystery, and it comes to be known as the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Then, in 1949, the tale takes a curious turn. While vacationing in Apache Junction, a man named Travis Tumlinson discovers something extraordinary. Stone tablets with carved markings and Spanish phrases. And a date, 1847. To the untrained eye, the meaning behind the other markings appears vague and elusive. But author and explorer Phil Reinhardt believes that by studying the stones, he has mined their true meaning. The Peralta stones are a very exacting map leading to a very specific location in the Superstition Mountains. Could this map lead to the source of Jacob Waltz's gold, the legendary Lost Dutchman's Mine? Four stone slabs, each engraved with cryptic symbols. These may look like simple etchings, but according to local lore, these symbols actually make up a treasure map. Some say if you can figure out what the symbols mean, they'll lead to a legendary gold mine inside an Arizona mountain. Phil Reinhardt believes that the stone's markings correspond with the geographic features of the Superstition Mountains. This big curved line that runs across the top of the map right here represents the Salt River. These two little circles represent two small mountains that are just, just to the north of the river. Once the features on each stone are identified, Reinhardt believes that a path begins to emerge. When the maps are used in a proper sequence, you start with the horse map. As you continue on, you get to the point where the heart map comes into play. It takes you to the finish, to the end of the trail. And this is the spot that the maps were designed to get you to. But what can be found at this secret location? Reinhardt believes that the key to decoding the Peralta stones lies within the heart insert. When the heart is flipped, it reveals a hidden value. Mysteriously, this number, one and six zeros, shows up right here, a million, which in 1847 was an unimaginable amount of money. 
could this be the source of Waltz's rare gold? The lost Dutchman's mine. Reinhardt cannot put his theory to the test. Today, this part of the Superstition Mountains is under the control of the National Forest Service. The Forest Service won't give me a permit to go in there and dig, so there's not much I can do. What lies beneath the surface at Reinhardt's secret location may never be determined. While the meaning behind the Peralta stones is still a mystery, these rock slabs remain on view at the Superstition Mountain Museum, sustaining the lustrous legend of the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Settled in 1623, the nation's third oldest city is picturesque Portsmouth, New Hampshire. At the Portsmouth Athenaeum, a museum dedicated to preserving the history and lore of this waterfront community. One of the most fascinating artifacts is a cracked wooden handle with a large metal blade on top. This axe may look like a hardware store reject, but writer J. Dennis Robinson knows that it's central to a 100-year-old crime that continues to fascinate. It's kind of frightening when you realize that this is a perfect tool for chopping wood, but it's also the perfect tool for murder. What happened in 1873 on this remote island off the coast of New Hampshire? And who used this tool as a deadly weapon? March 6, 1873, 7 a.m. A man on the shore of Appledore Island spots a woman on the coast of neighboring Smutty Nose Island, screaming and crying, her nightgown covered in blood. According to Portsmouth Athenaeum director Mary Ellen Burke, the man jumps into a small boat and rows to the desperate woman. He finds this woman shaking, hysterical. The woman is Norwegian immigrant Marin Honfet. She lives on the desolate island with her husband, her sister Karen, sister-in-law Inetta, and two male family members. Marin leads the neighbor up to the house, where he makes a gruesome discovery. He sees Netta's body with blood everywhere and Karen's body strangled with a handkerchief around her neck. So it's a pretty horrid scene. The man puts the shivering Marin Honfet into his boat and rows 10 miles to the Portsmouth police station, where Marin recounts what she describes as a horrifying night of bloodshed and murder. She tells the police that the previous night, the men of the household were away, leaving the three women alone on the island. After the women go to bed, Marin is awakened by Karen yelling, there's an intruder in the house. And the intruder actually hits Karen over the head. Marin frantically runs to wake up her sleeping sister-in-law, Annetta. Annetta hops out the window. Marin sees around the corner a shadowy figure. This person picks up an axe that's sitting there, and just as he's striking her, she screams, Lewis, Lewis, Lewis. And that's the last thing she says. Marin tells police that she didn't see the intruder's face. 
but she did recognize his name. She says it was Louis Wagner, an itinerant fisherman who had lived with Marin's family as a boarder. The police begin a manhunt for Louis Wagner. They track him to a house in Boston where he is arrested. Wagner is put on trial for murder. His suspected motive? Money. While Louis Wagner was boarding with the Hunt Vets, he learned that John Hunt Vet was saving up money to buy a new and larger fishing vessel. The prosecution says Wagner killed in order to steal the $600 that John Hontvet had stashed in his house. But Wagner insists he's innocent. He just keeps telling everybody, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. If Wagner isn't the killer, who is? Wagner points the finger at the very woman who put him on trial, Marin Hontvet and her husband, John. Louis Wagner says that John Hontvet had complained about all the things that people were eating in their house and it was costing him a lot of money. Did Marin and her husband really kill her sister and sister-in-law because of the cost of food? There are a number of people who think Marin did it because she was covered with blood and she was the only living witness. There is also physical evidence that might incriminate Marin and prove Louis Wagner's innocence. There were those who think at the trial that some of the axe wounds weren't heavy or deep enough for a man to have committed. So did Louis Wagner murder the two women on Smutty Nose Island? Or was the real killer their very own sister? It's 1873. On a desolate New Hampshire island, two women are savagely killed. The murder weapon? An axe, now on display at the Portsmouth Athenaeum. A man named Louis Wagner is put on trial for the killings, but he maintains his innocence and points the finger at Marin Hontvet, the tragedy's sole survivor. So who really committed this heinous crime? It's a difficult deliberation for the jury, but in the end, they come back with a unanimous decision. The verdict of the trial was that Louis Wagner was found guilty and he would be hanged for the murders of Karen and Annetta. The damning testimony is that Annetta screams, Louis, Louis, Louis. But while Louis Wagner sits in a prison cell awaiting execution, even more doubt about his guilt builds. People come to visit him convinced of his guilt, and after their visit, they leave very doubtful of his guilt, saying that such a nice guy couldn't possibly have done such a terrible thing. Yet despite pleas from the members of the community, Louis Wagner is hanged for the smutty nose killings on June 25th, 1875. He says, I didn't do it. And they drop the rope. To this day, people still wonder if Louis Wagner is yet another innocent victim in the mysterious case of the Smutty Nose killings. I could never in a million years believe that Marin would do this, and I think it's crazy to even think so. But I have a hard time imagining how Louis could do it. The more I study it, the more mysterious it gets. The case of the Smutty Nose murders might never be solved, but the murder weapon sitting at the Portsmouth Athenaeum 
will continue to fascinate visitors to the museum for generations to come. The desert community of Albuquerque is home to the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science and features artifacts culled from this state's arid, rocky landscape from ages past. But one of the collection's newest acquisitions is this high-tech object that speaks of a desert landscape millions of miles away. Mars. This is a replica of the Mars Spirit Rover. Outfitted with cutting-edge advancements in robotics, computer software, and solar technology. Spirit was designed to explore the Red Planet and answer a question that has fascinated fans of science fiction and scientists alike. Is there life on Mars? January 4th, 2004. After traveling 300 million miles through space, the unmanned Spirit rover touches down on the surface of Mars. For Mars explorer planning leader Larry Crumpler, the moment is thrilling. That's when you realize that you, you actually have a live spacecraft on the surface of another planet, and you're going to be doing cool stuff. Spirit sets out on its journey. Controlled by a team back on Earth, Spirit begins examining rocks and soil, searching for signs of life. Even for a high-tech precision machine like Spirit, the task is daunting. The Martian landscape is really not the best place that you'd send something that's really complicated and very, very rugged environment. The fine sands that blanket the planet could damage the rover's motors and optics. And just 18 days after landing on the Red Planet, the team's worst fears are realized. The $400 million spacecraft stops dead in its tracks. And suddenly, you know, boof, you know, it's like the, somebody pulled the plug. The rover refused to uh, report back. We had no idea whether it was something broken, whether you know, it died or what. There was no way of knowing. Engineers are stunned. With the rover unresponsive, it seems their years of hard work are wiped out. For days, they struggle to identify the problem and then finally make a critical discovery. The rover's memory system is overloaded, incapacitating all other functions. To refresh its memory, engineers attempt to reboot the rover. And suddenly, the little craft is jarred back to life. Now up and running, Spirit must race against time. Martian winter is closing in, and Spirit must reach a location where its solar panels will receive optimal light before the nearly 90 days of darkness begin. We were crossing this little sandy hollow, and um, it was kind of uh, real slippery, lots of loose soils and stuff. and. Lo and behold, that's when the front right wheel decides to go kaput. One of Spirit's six wheels is broken. With winter bearing down, engineers at Mission Control must now figure out how to operate the nearly crippled vehicle. So now suddenly we're five-wheel drive rover with one wheel acting as a boat anchor 
And we're driving across one of the slipperiest, you know, treacherous little patches of soil that we've been in. The hobbled rover finally approaches its southern destination. When suddenly, the team notices something peculiar. In the trail dug by the broken wheel is glimmering soil. We'd seen bright soil before. This bright soil was really different. What explains this unusual-looking soil? Could it offer evidence that this barren planet once supported life? In 2004, the Spirit rover embarks on a journey to look for evidence of life on Mars. From the outset, the little spacecraft is battered by the planet's brutal conditions. But as the rover powers through the Martian landscape, it is about to find that in the wake of misfortune lies an astonishing discovery. We had to drive through a little valley and um, dragging this wheel again. And everywhere we went, we left like this deep gash with this wheel. In the path carved by its broken wheel, Spirit uncovers unusual glimmering soil. It collects a sample and discovers that it contains high levels of salts and a mineral called silica. The only way these types of deposits could have been created is with water. And Spirit planning leader Larry Crumpler believes they are evidence that Mars was once covered in hot springs. The most conducive environments for formation of early life that you can think of is a hot spring where there's lots of energy, lots of nutrients, it's a nice benign, warm environment. Little bugs grow really well in the, uh, that sort of environment. Crumpler believes that the discovery of silica proves that life-sustaining conditions once existed on Mars. Seeing a lot of silica, type of silica that likes to form in uh, hot spring environments was really, you know, pretty spectacular. <laughs> That's, of course, like the holy grail for a Mars mission. Once a threat to the mission, the broken wheel of spirit uncovered this truly remarkable discovery. This replica of the spirit rover remains on view at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, a testament to the power of exploration and a reminder that on distant planets, life may exist. From robot explorers to missing moon rocks, maritime disasters to sinister smog. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.